1: Hello and welcome to The Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer.
2: And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're here with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business.
1: Joining us in the studio today, it is James Restall from The Times. So Coming up, we're going to look ahead to England's 1,000th international match at Wembley on Thursday. But first, let's head to Anfield. Liverpool laid down a significant marker in their bid to win a first league title in 30 years by beating the champions Manchester City 3-1 at Anfield. The roof was lifted off Anfield as early as the sixth minute when Fabinho drilled the ball past Claudio Bravo from 30 yards but the goal was shrouded in controversy as City thought they should have had a penalty just 22 seconds earlier when the ball struck Trent Alexander-Arnold's arm in the penalty area. VAR checked the incident, deemed there was no penalty, so the goal stood to bring another huge roar from the Liverpool faithful. But let's ask both yourselves, Gregor and James, where do you stand on the Manchester City penalty shout? Obviously, Pep Guardiola believes they should have got a penalty. Do you think they should have?
2: Yes, yes. I think so. I think um, the the issue is the is the is the rules first mm. and foremost. I think you know the natural silhouette. If anything was unnatural in uh, that silhouette, that, that was definitely Trent Alexander's arm in that that situation. I think I can see that, that I feel that when it, the ball kind of ricocheted back off Bernardo Silva, mm-hmm. you know, slowed down fractionally, slowed down uh, freeze frames it. It happened very, very quickly, and I feel like he, Alexander Arnold was really searching for Aguero. He was almost holding his arm out to sort of feel for the for the striker, for the opponent in the penalty area, which is something defenders naturally do. Um, but as it was, the, his arm was well outside his silhouette, and the ball would have run through to to Raheem Sterling with the goal at his mercy. So I think really it should have been a penalty. Yes,
1: James, do you agree? There are a lot of people saying that the Bernardo Silver handball would have actually discounted. The trent alexander arnold penalty claim because of the fact that the new law changes and everything else
3: Uh, i think an incident which divides even referees i mean we have bobby madley and mark clattenberg uh on one side of the argument saying it shouldn't have been a penalty and our own peter walton saying that it should have been a penalty so i think when even the experts in the game are divided i think really it's it's an issue of law and there needs to be more clarity um Personally, I think it should have been a penalty. Um, I think if we're looking at natural silhouette, as 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 Gregor said, um, I think he I think he makes and he makes himself unnaturally bigger, and uh, and I think that should have been a spot kick.
2: But that I have to say that I think that's a ludicrous law, mm. you know. But by the law, his arm was clearly out of his body, so that I, I don't really see how it couldn't be given.
1: Well, either way, Vincent Company certainly was strong on it and saying if it wasn't a penalty then it should have been at least uh, the game should have at least stopped because of Bernardo Silva's handball so you can maybe understand in both situations why Manchester City will not be happy with the outcome of that particular situation
2: no not really I think Bernardo Silva was so so quick it was such a quick ricochet Mm. and I think by the laws it, it would have been you know by a free kick that it couldn't have been stopped or certainly by by VAR so um I think I think you know as James is saying when the experts are divided even on <laughs> on the, the so-called experts are divided on the on the incident then I think really you need to look at the way the laws have been drafted
1: Well, as a result of that victory for Liverpool, they've now won 11 of their first 12 Premier League games this season, lead the table now by eight points. Only Manchester United, back in 1993-94, have had a bigger lead after 12 games of a Premier League season, and that was nine points. But let's focus at the moment on the champions, Manchester City, and a lot has been made of uh, the team selection and whether or not Pep Guardiola got it right or wrong. So let's bring in the times, the Manchester man, Paul Hurst for more on this one and, and where it all went wrong for Pep Guardiola's side. Um, Paul, when you look at uh, the changes that Pep Guardiola made six in total, some of course enforced as Claudio Bravo started in goal for the injured Edison, but he has altered that back four uh, once again, and a lot of people saying, "Where was Benjamin Mendy?"
4: Yeah, I, I was asking that very question. <laughs> I just when I saw Angelino was playing, I just thought that's um, you know, that's uh, it's, it's a big risk playing him. He, you know, I think, it was his second Premier League start. I mean, he's a, he's a very good player going forward, Angelino. He's um, he's a very good crosser of the ball, um, but defensively, I just think he lacks that kind of composure. Um, that City need uh, in that particularly in that kind of environment. Um, Pep was saying on Friday that Anfield was the the hardest stadium to go to in Europe at the moment. So it did he, he kind of baffled me why he didn't play Mendy. And Pep said afterwards that he couldn't he felt that he couldn't play him twice in a week. Um, but then you know he played him against Atlanta, who uh, in a match which you know they, they could have if they had lost against Atlanta it wouldn't have mattered really. They'll still go through. Um, so knockout stages. So when when I saw Angelino was playing, I was a bit a bit miffed. Really, I was, I couldn't really understand that one.
1: Yeah, three of the back four from that uh, draw with Atalanta were changed. John Stones picked a partner for in the centre of defence. Carl Walker and, as you say, Angelino, who was only making his second Premier League start, uh, were the full-backs for uh, City. Gregor, can you make sense of these changes that Pep Guardiola made?
2: It's hard to make sense of certainly a left back. Um but the thing I I think is we're kind of Laporte is the obviously the huge miss. Mm. Um but otherwise City that is City's sort of defensive line at the moment and it you know, I think that's that's been their problem right from the start of the season. Laporte was Laporte's injury was a huge blow, but alongside them, John Stones has not been convincing at all. Otamendi really I don't think they they really wanted the club much longer. Um Kil Walker started the season really well. He was perhaps for the for the third goal a little bit fault and wasn't his best game at the weekend. But you know, I just think that Manchester City's back four as a whole is is a problem. Mm. Um and you can hide behind the fact that Laporte is injured and the goalkeeper is injured, but even where they fit, I think Manchester City's defence is the, the serious weak spot on this team.
1: Well, for all they have going forward, James, certainly the defence at Anfield at times just looked in disarray.
3: Well, I can help looking to the Sky Studio at half-time and before the game and seeing Vincent Company sitting there and thinking that's what they're missing. Um, given the resources at Manchester City's disposal, I don't know why they didn't go and replace him in the summer. Um, and I think... You know, I mean, even even company last season. It was his amazing goal at Leicester that that handed them the title. Is it's just they're missing everything about that man, and um, I think that could be the difference this season.
1: And Paul, maybe that is the, the the big highlight that we should be talking about the fact that there is no Vincent Company in the Manchester City team anymore. They talked about getting in a replacement. We knew, know that they were linked to Harry Maguire, but they wouldn't stretch to the eighty million plus that that Manchester United wanted to pay for him.
4: Yeah, I mean Pep Guardiola rarely falls out with his superiors. Obviously he gets on very well with um, Chika Bagiristan Be- and, and Ferran Soriano and um and Khaldun Mabarak, the, the chairman but you know he was he was very unhappy in the summer when they didn't sign Harry Maguire. You know as as James said you know they've got so much money at City that you know why not you know pay the extra 10 million of Harry Maguire. Um you know they are missing you know, missing a, a huge personality in company uh, as well as a defender. Um, so he would have been like the perfect uh, replacement for me. I just think as soon as Lepore got injured, I just thought that was it for City's title chances. I, I just He's such a, a big player for them and to have inconsistent centre-halves in Otamendi and Stones as your only options, it's just, uh, he just left City wide open. I think Fernandinho's probably been their best centre-back this season, which tells you everything you need to know about those those options at the moment.
1: We'll talk more about the title race in just a moment. And interesting what you had to say on that, Paul. But I wanted to also speak about Sergio Aguero, who we know has not had a great record at Anfield. This was his ninth ma- match there uh, against Liverpool in all competitions. He's never scored there. And he had 14 shots without success across those nine games. He had a number of chances uh, against Liverpool at Anfield yesterday as well but he cannot score. I
2: think yeah. I think there's a couple with, with Atletico Madrid as well. I'm sure it's 11 and all uh, <laughs> over his career so it's an incredible stat for someone who you know it, some of those chances the one that was flashed across the six yard box in particular it was almost I don't know he just didn't stick his leg out <laughs> enough yeah. to, to get contact yeah. with it um, and he was just bef- just before half-time, he was sent through and, and dragged his shot across goal. It was a bad day for him. Um, and seriously, there is there does seem to be something about him at Anfield. Well, I, don't, I don't know what it is.
1: Well, as someone, obviously, that's played the game, Gregor, can you actually have a, a hoodoo, a jinx over you that plays on your mind?
2: Uh, not that, not in my experience. I mean, I th- although I, I didn't have to play Anfield many times, <laughs> I'm <friends>. <laughs> <laughs> Um No, I mean, look, uh, he, was, he was getting in the areas. I know that's a cliche, but it's kind of there was lots of chances. I just, um, I think it's, I think Anfield is a, is a bit of a hoodoo for, for Manchester City in general. And, and for Pep Guardiola, I think that, you know, he's spoken about it so much before the game, about the sort of, about the atmosphere and the, how it's one of the most difficult places to go in the world, really. Um, and perhaps that kind of permeates into the squad a little bit. I think, you know, as well as Manchester City played in spells, we expect them to play like that. We expect them to create chances. Um, I still think Liverpool thoroughly deserved to win because they controlled the game for large large periods and they took advantage of City's weaknesses and that's that's why they deserve to win.
1: Well, after the game, Guardiola made a point of walking over to the referee, Michael Oliver and his team, to shake their hands, repeatedly thanking them. When asked if his thanks were genuine, he said, of course, and bizarrely insisted that his team's performance was the performance of champions. Now, Guardiola has lost eight matches in all competitions against Klopp, three more than he has against any other manager. Paul, I'm sure you know him fairly well from your time in Manchester. Do you think he's beginning to crack under the pressure of facing his Liverpool foe?
4: i think it's just the the you know the pressure of the whole title race is definitely kind of showing on him um you know his, his touchline theatrics were even more um pronounced than the, than they usually are yesterday. I, you know the the clock thing is uh you know is, is is something that he's you know he can't he can't shake off can of he? he can't he can't beat him not really um but as as greg said you know the the whole the the, the sort of curse of city and um, playing at Liverpool is also, um, you know, also important. They, they very rarely um, win at Anfield. Um, I, the thing with Pep is that is kind of showing signs of the strain a little bit. But I, I just think if it, you know, if it continues like this and they don't win Premier League this season, I, I, I still think I still back him to be there next year because I, I don't think that he'd want to leave City on a low point.
1: Having said that, though, should they win the Champions League? Do you think he could leave after that this season?
4: I think you know if if they did win the Champions League, that was he would have ticked every box, wouldn't he? He won every trophy that uh, there is, and they've they've been longing for that trophy for so long at, at the club. I um, just you know, Pochettino was on about that in the summer that he could have left Spurs if they'd if they'd won the the Champions League. But the thing is, with Pep, he has got everything that he needs at City. There's no. Political infighting that he had at Barcelona. There's no meddling from from the owners. He's you know he's got the perfect environment um, to succeed. So you know he's got another year to go on his contract after this one. So I, I, I think he'd probably still still stay. And I, I, I know certain City certainly you know expect him to to see out that contract. Um, he, was, he was telling that he signed a two-year extension rather than a one-year extension. So. You know, it's all pointing towards him staying um, at the moment. So, yeah, I think that's um, that's how it'll pan out.
1: And, and Paul, to pick up on something that you mentioned a little bit earlier on, with no Laporte in the Manchester City side, you sort of suggested that the title race swung heavily in favour of Liverpool as a result of that. That's strongly what you believe? It's as simple as that, down to one man?
4: I think he's he's such a big presence, Laporte. You know, he, he offers height, which City don't have in their team at all, particularly when Rodri's not playing and he's just he's just so good at bringing the ball out from the back. He's like an extra midfielder when he plays Laporte. So uh, yeah, he's that was a, it was a really um, telling moment for me in the title race when he got injured. And just looking at the people around Pep when Laporte got injured, they they knew that was as a massive blow for them. Um, and it's you know it's one that, that that they probably won't recover from because they didn't sign a replacement.
1: James, after that result then at Anfield, do you feel that the title race is over?
3: Uh, I don't. Um, because I think they've still got to go to the Etihad. And you look at sort of how results can go, particularly over a busy Christmas period. We don't know how far each team's gonna get in the Champions League. Um, I mean Liverpool have Liverpool have got the Club World Cup, which we were talking about last week. There there are so many there are so many different factors that I still think I still think nine points is not enough at this stage of a gap over City I think you know I don't think Liverpool will be thinking they've won it at this point um and I still think they will have to get an almighty points total 90 plus at least to 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 make sure of the title this year
1: Gregor where do you stand on the title race I mean we 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 sort of say it's between Liverpool and Manchester City but the way Leicester and, and Chelsea are playing right now can you dismiss them as well
2: yeah, I'm dismiss- dismissing them all. It's Liverpool's.
1: Oh, <laughs> I think done and dusted.
2: I think look, I completely agree. I don't think Liverpool will think that way. Uh I agree they've got what well, they've got twelve games in five weeks across the kind of festive period. Um injuries, you've got to, you know, there's a huge caveat if they were to lose we were discussing if they were to lose a full back who are so important for them, or Van Dyke. Mm-hmm. I still think they would cope better than Manchester City have. Because they've got these, I think they've got more kind of depth to their squad, um, but I think I just can't see Liverpool losing. Maybe it would probably have to be you know four or five games between now and the end of the season, and Manchester City being almost kind of perfect. I can't see that happening. So I think really it's done. They're so so much better than everyone else in the league.
1: Leicester laid down a significant marker in the race to finish in the Premier League's top four by beating Arsenal two nil to move nine points ahead of sixth place Gunners. Jamie Vardy broke the deadlock in the 68th minute with his ninth goal in as many games against the Gunners, finishing a slick Leicester move involving Yuri Tillemans and Harvey Barnes. James Madison then secured Leicester's win seven minutes later with a fine strike into the bottom corner to send the Foxes second. In the table, the defeat increases the heat, of course, on under fire Arsenal head coach Unai Emery, whose position at the Emirates has come under intense pressure in recent weeks. They're down to sixth then in the table, eight points behind fourth place right now. And they are without a win in their last four Premier League matches. So the speculation continues over the position of Unai Emery. James, should we actually be speculating over his future or should we be thinking it's just a dip right now?
3: Well, uh, Tony Cascarino in his game column this morning has said it's a one-game situation for Emery now. Um, He thinks defeat against Southampton after the international break, and that should be curtains. Um, And I can understand why he's come to that conclusion because, I mean, that performance at Leicester was, was awful. I mean, you've got Aubameyang and Lacazette, two incredible forwards who on their day probably some of the best forwards in the Premier League, operating effectively as wing-backs. And you've got, you know, at times you would see a flat-back Arsenal 5 defence, the midfield in front, and just sitting off Leicester, not putting them under any pressure and basically saying, you know, they were hanging in there for an hour before Leicester scored. Mm -hmm. So I can see why why people are calling for change at Arsenal.
1: His position is being questioned more and more, uh, partly down to the tactics that everyone just... The Muse is over. No one can quite understand what Arsenal we're seeing week in, week out, Gregor.
2: What well, Arsenal are? I think you know <laughs> they, they've they've been kind of shown up on a, on a number of occasions now, and Le- the the Le- that Leicester team and the effect Brendan Rodgers has had on them was, was one instance that's kind of pretty damning of of Unai Emery and his and his tactics and his imprint on the team. You know, they, I completely agree. They were. There's a heat map in the game today of of Arsenal, and they were, you know, Leicester played almost entirely in an Arsenal's half, uh, and I know Arsenal are having a tough time of it, but to kind of sit off and be so sort of submissive was 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 very peculiar. And, and I agree, having your some of your the most at, outstanding attacking talents in the Premier League operating as fullback is is, is bizarre. So I, I, you know, I don't I think he's fortunate in that the next games they've got Southampton. Uh, Norwich, Brighton, West Ham and then you've got Manchester City, Everton, Chelsea Manchester United so that kind of block of games that's coming up are going to be key for him and you know I think all the, the noises emanating from from the Emirates are saying that they want to they want to give him the season they want to they want to stick with him but I think if he was to lose the next couple the next three games even or just not get any points out of those next four games I think he should go anyway, really. I think I don't. I think he's failed. I think it's a. It was a tough. It was going to be a tough job to replace uh, Arsene Wenger. But I think there's no evidence that they've improved. And I think really it's going to be a pretty toxic place for the remainder of the season. I think it could almost be a case of they just kind of continue for the rest of the season because they don't want to make a sort of knee-jerk reaction, unless it gets so bad, and then they just part company in the summer.
1: Well, their record of 17 points and a minus one goal difference is their worst ever start to a Premier League season after 12 games. Um, James, can we have any sympathy for Emery in the sense that do you you feel his hands may well have been tied in the transfer market, for example, and that the players that were already at Arsenal simply weren't good enough anyway?
3: I think so. But if you look at the business they did do, they they spent a record 72 million on Nicolas Pepe and he's not exactly shown or he's not exactly been the player i think arsenal fans were expecting him to be a couple of brilliant free kicks in the europa league aside um and also you know there's big question marks over david luiz as a defender as well you know he's not he's not kind of you know he 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 does have an error in him he's played very well for chelsea over the years but you know if you're looking to fix a defence i don't know necessarily whether david luiz would be the right player so i think in terms of the recruitment that they have done i don't know how successful that has been really
1: well. As it is, it was Leicester that won that game, and Brendan Rogers' side's haul of 26 points from their 12 Premier League games this season is the most ever. At this stage of a top-flight campaign, that's one more than they had in their title-winning season of 2015-16. Brendan Rodgers insists he is loving it at Leicester, despite calls for him to replace Unai Emery at Arsenal. After the win, Rodgers also suggested that he never received the necessary financial backing at Liverpool to go on and win the league. He said this, at Liverpool, of course, we were very good going forward. You have to ask, did I have the players to defend how we'd want to defend? I think now at Liverpool, they obviously invest a lot of money to get those tight of players in so that's him speaking about his time at Liverpool but with regards to how well Leicester are doing under Brendan Rogers, first of all let's just ask how has he changed things from when Claude Puel was there?
2: I mean dramatically in every department I think speaking to speaking to Leicester players they've just been absolutely blown away by the the level of detail of his training Um, and you know it it bore, bore fruit almost immediately it was I think they play like more than a hundred passes more per game than than under Club, club well. um The the press and the intensity of their game you can you kind if of, you saw that against Southampton, you know they were going four and five the up and he was still on the touchline, you know cajoling them and saying, close down. It's like as soon as they lose the ball, they've got to hound it, hound to get it back. And it's, it's such stark contrast to Arsenal and you see them sort of players ambling back or not closing down and some of the goals they've conceded have have been you know kind of teams have just cut through them with ease um so it's both sides of the game i think there's just there's a real you know kind of real uplift in the level of intensity of their training and that's transferred to the transfer to a match day and the the whole overall style of play has been transformed they're possession dominant and the the, the first goal was kind of trademark Leicester now already from ricardo um and, the, you know, the little combination between Harvey Barnes, a little flick to Tielemans, and he squared it for Vardy, and Vardy scored. We've seen a few of those goals already this season, and I think we'll see a lot more of them. It's those sort of combinations uh, in and around the penalty box, and they've got talent players that are talented enough to do that.
1: Gregor's already said that the title race is done and dusted, James, but do you think Leicester can really shake things up?
3: Um, I think they're a fearless team, and they will give it a go against any opposition, and they will be effective against a lot of opponents. Um in terms of whether they're going to really challenge for the title, I think uh, I think the top four is a more realistic ambition. Um, I'd also love to see them win one of the domestic cups. I think uh, the top four is a more realistic ambition for Leicester this season. Um, it'd be great to see them win one of the domestic cups mm-hmm. this season, and I think that's, a, that's also a realistic objective. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think they're, they're one of the most exciting teams this season, and the top four should be their aim now.
1: Is that the same for you then, Gregor? Top four for Leicester?
3: Absolutely, yeah. I think you know, obviously they've they've been
2: they've been helped by the sort of turmoil at, at Manchester United and Tottenham and Arsenal, but they 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 look like a better side than than all three of those teams at the moment essentially. And it's going well. I'm sure there'll be there'll be, uh, be you know there will be troubles for them. There'll be times where if they lose, if they were to lose Vardy per se, although he's got a great injury record. Um, if they were to lose Madison or Telemans, but they've got you know really kind of a young, hungry team that is determined to sort of better themselves, and and I think there is also something about the the since since the kind of tragedy of the mm-hmm. of uh, of Chai's death, I think there is a real determination to win a trophy as well. It's the, you know you look at the team selections they've made for domestic cups, I think there is a determination to win a trophy and to sort of honour him with so. I think it's very positive times for Leicester and and, uh, and I think actually beyond the season they'll, they'll be struggling to hold on to Brendan Rodgers.
1: Just finally on Leicester though, inevitably as they progress and do so well as they are, won't they have a fight to keep hold of Brendan Rodgers?
3: I think so. Um, but I think if they do reach the top four and they are in the Champions League the next season, then I think that's reason enough for him to stay at least another season um, and see how far he can get them in Europe Um Equally, if if they win a if they win the FA Cup, say, um, you know, I think I think that's that's every reason for him to stay.
2: I agree because he's, you know, there was a, there was a big fallout with <laughs> with Celtic and his departure there, um, and I don't think it would do his sort of image any sort of any favours if he was to walk out in Leicester within the space of a year. Or so, I think he'll, he's determined to kind of stay and, and build something there. But I think there will be suitors because as we're seeing, his impact on the team has been it's been remarkable.
5: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
1: Sheffield United overcame VAR controversy to grab a one-all draw at Tottenham after having a goal ruled out for John Lundstrom's big toe being offside. Uh, despite being second best for the majority, Spurs took the lead through Hyungmin min Son, but the Blades thought they had equalised when David McGoldrick struck two minutes later. However, after a four-minute wait at the centre circle, VAR overturned the goal as it was deemed Lundström's big toe was offside in the build-up. Chris Wilder's men were right to feel hard done by, but remained the more creative team and found a way through when George Baldock's cross from the right flew straight in as Spurs just couldn't match United's intensity and willingness to press in midfield. It has been such an impressive campaign for Sheffield United so far, flying high um, of the promoted teams. How high do you think Sheffield United could finish, Gregor? As someone Um, who knows Chris Wilder well.
2: (laughs) I mean, it's a difficult question. I think think the top half is definitely attainable for them. Um, But I just think with... You know, there's a lot going on in the Premier League just now, but it's, there's definitely worthy of mention. It's remarkable mm. that they're fifth. They've not lost away from home in the first season in the Premier League. I don't think they've lost... There was a good start from Bill, actually, in the paper today. They've not lost away from home in a year in England. They did lose against Swansea City, but they're Welsh, obviously. Um, <laughs> and they've not lost by more than one goal for 60 games, which is remarkable. So I think, you know, we've t- spoken about the impact that Brendan Rodgers has had on Leicester, the impact that, and the sort of identity of Liverpool and under Jurgen Klopp, and the same can be said of Manchester City, of course. But the same equally is true of Sheffield United. And I think it's also quite instructive to see how supporters of teams, you know, when when, when they beat Arsenal 1-0 at Bramall Lane, Sheffield United were showered with praise, but there was also a bit of kind of fun being poked at Arsenal. And then they go to Tottenham, and, you know, every Tottenham Hotspur fan I know, as staunch a supporter as they may be, they said Sheffield United were the better team. And it's like everywhere they go, they're sort of impressing, they're having an impression on opposition fans, and they're not really kind of understanding how how well organised and well coached and well drilled this team is um, until they kind of see it for themselves firsthand. Um, and I think that's going to continue throughout the season. It's, their team is... You know, it's the same every single week. You can name it from one to 11, apart from perhaps a striker. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about the only change they ever make. And they're such a kind of well-organised, well-drilled uh, team that are so solid defensively, but when they need to, they flood players forward in attack. And they're really, really hard to beat.
1: But that is what's so unique about them. They have a unique brand, a unique style about Sheffield United that we're seeing in the Premier League, James.
3: Um, I mean, my first recollections of Chris Wilder was covering Northampton in, I think, 2015-16. And they were top of League Two. Um, But there uh, there were financial problems at the club. The players hadn't been paid for weeks, if not months. Um, And yet, this was a team that were playing high intensity attacking football every week um they were they were on their way to setting i think record points totals and chris wilder was the man motivating these players who weren't being paid through this what must have been a very very difficult time for the club um and you know there were fans outside rattling buckets trying to save the club um while the team were doing remarkable things on the pitch so while i'm surprised that sheffield united are fifth in the table um I'm not surprised that we're seeing these performances with Sheffield United because this is a manager everywhere he's gone, um, it, it, it seems to be the ultimate motivator. There's been some really, you know, there has
2: been one or two lazy assessments of, of Sheffield United so far this season about them being kind of long ball merchants, and you know, even uh, much as I love uh, James Gearbrand, he's his column last week about you know he's comparing uh, Sean Dyche and, and Chris Wilder. Brilliant column because it kind of. Articulated the the earthy values of these two guys and their sort of impact on their on their two teams and their clubs, but it was there was one line it was saying it was kind of a game that's more likely to be played in the air than air above Bramall Lane than on the pitch. Go and watch if you need It's not that's not true. You might be you know top near the top of the statistics for long balls, but when they get the ball down and play, they pass it with a with pace and purpose, and you know I think they're a joy to watch at times.
1: In the game today, the Times' Bill Edgar has crunched the numbers on Tottenham's poor run and believes they're too reliant on Harry Kane. Here's Bill with more.
6: I've had a look at how Mauricio Pochettino uses substitutions when his Tottenham side are trailing in a match because it felt as though Harry Kane is never chosen to make way. So to see if that was true, I looked back at Tottenham's matches from the summer of 2014 onwards, which was about the time Kane leapt to prominence, and found that, aside from two occasions when he was injured or lacking fitness after a long-term injury, he had never been taken off by Pochettino when the team were behind. Of the 54 games in which Kane had been substituted in his period, Spurs were winning in 50 and drawing the other four, and those four matches were fixtures where Spurs would probably have been happy with a draw. Yet Tottenham's other leading attacking players have been substituted many times uninjured when the team had been losing during that period. Christian Eriksen nine times, Eric Lamella and Deli Ali thirteen times each, and Son Heung-min nineteen times. So for more than five years now, Kane has clearly been seen as indispensable.
1: Mm. The times has Bill Edgar there was some number crunching on Spurs' poor run in the Premier League, but do we think it is all down to an over-reliance on Kane? What do we think?
3: Uh, I think that, I think they are over-reliant on Harry Kane. I think he. Uh, I think you know he. He has that knack of being able to get you a goal whenever, and I think you know he's not been in the best form this season, but his goal tally is still fairly strong. And I, and I think, yeah. and I think he, you know, I almost don't blame Pochettino for for not taking him off. Why would you if you need a goal? He's your man. But um, it does suggest an over reliance. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean he's he's their talisman. Um, I have to. Just one caveat with you know. Remember James Gearbrand writing some really interesting pieces about. Um, the times when he's been injured, when Kane's been injured, and it almost seems like Tottenham, as a kind of collective and an attacking unit, sometimes play better. And that, I find that very interesting. But the thing is, Kane just keeps coming up with moments. He can create his own goals, um, and he's you know he rarely misses when he's uh, given an opportunity. So he's, he is their talisman, and, and it's not surprising at all that they don't want to take him off the pitch.
1: It is time now to look back on the EFL and uh, this weekend, Gregor, you've been to High Flying Preston. Uh, they ended Huddersfield's seven match on beaten run with a comfortable win. Is that right? At Deepdale?
2: Yeah, very comfortable lure. Um flew out the blocks, uh three one victory. Uh there were two two up within within half an hour. Um Paul Gallagher scored a third early in the second half. Huddersfield rallied towards the end, but Preston looked solid and I think really, you know, having just spoken about Chris Wilder and Sheffield United, I, I don't want to go overboard about this, but there are some parallels in the okay. fact. That, well, they have—they're a kind of a similar club in that they're a you know a club with rich history in the north, who have been almost kind of feel like they've been left behind a little bit by the modern game. They're, you know, their their match day and commercial revenues are among the lowest in the league, with the smallest one of the smallest budgets. I think the wage bill is 15000000 Um million. They've got a squad that's kind of made up of, of players from the lower leagues that they've paid maybe a few hundred thousand pounds for. I think their record signing was Tom Bayless from Coventry City for a couple of million in the summer. But before that, it was like 2001 for David Healy from Manchester United. So it shows the kind of, the very kind of frugal journey they've been on. They've been in League One. Um... And in Alex Neil, they've got someone who's kind of no-nonsense, says it how it is, straight talker. Uh, and also, a you know, tactically intelligent, very kind of a good coach and a good manage- manager and a motivator. Um, so I, I, and watching them, they were really, from the first whistle, they were up and at Huddersfield and they could not cope with them. And it, I just did get some kind of... I drew some parallels in my in my column mm. today with with what's happened at Sheffield United, because I don't think anyone really took Sheffield United seriously last year. There was so much talk about Leeds United under Marcelo Bielsa, about Aston Villa, even when they were kind of surging surging up through the through the division when after Dean Smith took over. You know, bigger clubs, more vaunted names in the dugout, on the team badge, mm. um, even on the team sheet, clubs with far far higher wage bills. You know. And I don't think anyone, anyone really believed until until the death that Sheffield United were going to do what they did. And I think we're, you know the championship is could well do the same with with Preston North End this year. They've been quite close in the last couple of years. They've had the team, the same team for a number, a couple of seasons, again, which is similar to Sheffield United. They know each other inside out. The way the way their strengths and weaknesses, the way they play, they're well drilled, highly motivated, and I think they've got a chance this season.
1: England's Euro 2020 qualifier at Wembley on Thursday against Montenegro will see them reach 1,000 senior men's internationals. And James, you've been putting together times Times' coverage ahead of this monumental match on Thursday. What can we expect?
3: Um, we've got lots of things lined up for this uh, this amazing milestone that the England national team have reached. Um, kicking off today, um, Matt Dickinson has interviewed um, Viv Anderson and um, Alan Mullery, and... Um, two two former England players um who are significant for very different reasons um Viv Anderson was the first black men's senior international and he talks about um he talks about uh racism in football from uh, over the last 40 years how much has changed and how much hasn't how much improvement there has been in in tackling these issues um Alan Mullery um, was the first England player to be sent off. Um, so, uh, and 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 um, Alan Mullery talks about his, uh, I think his grandson, um, seeing that clip for the first time. So, um, there are there, there are lots of things like that that we've got planned. Um, and if anybody hasn't read it so far, I would um, I'd urge them to read Matt's uh, column from last week um, with Bert Mosley, who um, but was. Um, very sadly until a couple of weeks ago, the oldest living England international, he'd sadly passed away um in Canada where he lives where he lived, um, aged ninety six. Um and um and Matt had Matt had tracked him down and had planned to speak to him for an interview for this piece. Um it's a very it's a very um emotional read and I'd 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 urge everyone to read it.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful piece and I agree with you you should read it certainly and and it was it was more about how they didn't realize the significance of, of him and the fact that he was still alive at the time when and Matt tries to get in touch with them. It is a beautiful piece so please do read it. Uh, Harry Kane has been speaking ahead of the showpiece event at Wembley, he has selected England's 5-1 win in Germany back in 2001 as his favourite ever England game. James, do you, do you agree with that one?
3: 5-1, um, the 5-1 in Germany is certainly the first England match I remember watching the full 90 minutes of. Um, uh, I was in a holiday cottage with my mum, my dad, my brother, aunt, uncle and my nan and we were sitting there eating fish and chips beforehand on a tiny little TV and um, we did a sweepstake and um, my nan picked nil-nil and uh, <laughs> so uh, so uh, so that was good fun. I think she she left very quickly after uh, Carsten Yanker uh, scored. Uh, okay. um, my own personal favourite and it's not just because Gregor's sitting here. Um, <laughs> my own personal favourite uh, bizarrely uh, it's as amazing as our as amazing as the penalty shootout win at the World Cup was and reaching the semi-finals. Um, for me, it was when Ricky Lambert scored against Scotland. Um, the reason being, uh, as a Leighton Orient fan myself, I'd seen Ricky Lambert terrorise Leighton Orient defenders <laughs> at Rochdale, <laughs> at Stockport, at, at, um, at Bristol Rovers and at Southampton. And to see him come off the bench and score the winner for England, I thought it was just the most amazing story. And, um, and it was great to see his journey sort of reach that pinnacle.
2: I was at that game actually. That's, yeah, I was oh, trying to I think. You know, I was, I was trying to think the first England game. that may be the only England game I've been at. <laughs> um, I think Scotland took the lead twice as well on that one. No, I, then, I
1: think it stands in your mind because it was such a poignant moment for Ricky Lambert. Of, of course, yes, yes. No, <laughs>
2: I, actually, that that was an, an amazing journey for mm, for Ricky Lambert. Yeah. I think it was the first time that the two two countries had played in about fourteen years as well. So that was quite that was quite a, a memorable game. Um, but there's not been many other memorable games England games for me I'm afraid because <laughs> usually it's involves Scotland playing and us losing
1: Well, I I mean, I do like the 5-1 win, I have to say, that Harry Kane opted for. I'm a bit older than you, James, so I remember I was at uh, university and uh, we watched it at home, the girls, and we enjoyed it so much. Obviously, the the euphoria that led after that. We obviously had to go straight out, didn't we? We had to go to the pub for celebratory drinks, so that was (laughs) a good night. Um, In the game today, England's greatest 11 is being compiled, starting with the goalkeeper. So, if we're doing that, and we're picking England's greatest ever goalkeeper. Who do we opt for in there?
3: Um, it's a difficult one if you're only picking players who you've seen. Um, because on on those grounds, I'd probably have to go for David Seaman, as I think Matt Lawton picked. Um, uh, but I think looking over the piece... And over the thousand games, you, you you can't look past Gordon Banks. I mean, when uh, when when Gordon sadly passed away uh, recently, that save was replayed again and again and the again. Pelé save. The Pele save, mm-hmm. and and it was and it was analysed, kind of in the way that we now analyse football and looking at it from as many angles as we can and reaction times. And it was just it's just one of the most. It's a remarkable, iconic moment. And. You know The fact that that actually came in a de- in an England defeat as well and the fact that we, t- we still talk about that save um, and as a World Cup winner, um, I- I'd have to go for Gordon Banks. Mm.
1: I think that the reason we talk about it more and more as well it, it, but because Pele actually, he strongly thought it was in. It was a goal. Yeah. No one could save it. Yeah, it was a tremendous save by, by Gordon Banks. I'm sure you're loving this conversation <laughs> no, that yeah. we're having, Gregor, but <laughs> if we could ask you to pick who you would say would be England's best number one ever.
2: Well, I mean, that, that save is kind of seared in my memory too. I had a VHS video of, of kind of World Cups as a kid and that was a moment that I remember very clearly. But Peter Shilton as well, I think, you know, he's, he was a huge figure at Nottingham Forest when I started out. Um, Obviously won the European Cup there. Um, And he was kind of spoken of as a professional, a real professional in a time when players weren't professional if <laughs> you know what I mean and that's the only you know that's the reason why he's had such a hall of caps and I think a record number of appearances as well um so yeah I think Peter Shilton was a kind of huge huge figure and a kind of iconic England goalkeeper as well so well I didn't see him live he's someone who's whose impact I kind of was
3: aware of coming through as a as a young pro
1: do you think England are in good hands right now James under Gareth Southgate
3: absolutely um I, there, there have been some. There have been a couple of setbacks recently. The Czech Republic result wasn't wasn't brilliant. Um, the Nations League semi final against Holland um, exposed the flaws or perhaps the unpreparedness of the team to play out from the back under pressure. But I think when you I th- when when you look at England under under Gareth Southgate, I think you've got to look to that result against Spain in the Nations League group stage, and that was the night everything clicked and England were that was England getting people out of their seats and getting people excited and going three nil up against Spain that that's a result or that that was that was a moment in a match that I probably wouldn't have seen happening even two years ago when we were crashing out to Iceland so I think I think I think England are under a good place I love the way that he's bringing in bringing in young players and he's he's, get, he's he's recognising the players in form, giving them call-ups, getting them in the team, getting them around, in and around the squad. Um, so I think England are in a very good place.
1: Just on that point, and maybe Gregor, you can help us out on this. You mentioned he's bringing in young players. We're still waiting for Jack Grealish to get the nod. Fabian Delph, obviously he's been brought in. Uh, and in a way, Southgate has received criticism for the fact that he's left out Grealish and brought in Delph. What does the Aston Villa man have to do to get into this England squad? Well,
2: I think he was left out of the Derby at the weekend, so he's obviously had a, a bit of an injury, um, which hasn't helped him on this occasion. But um, I don't know. I feel like there's a risk of him being someone like a kind of Latissi, and that he's there's there's something that's perhaps missing in in Gareth Southgate's eye, and maybe it's dynamism. You know, he's a, he's a he's an he's an unusual player. He's kind of very elegant. He strolls around the pitch. He can beat players without being particularly quick, um, and he actually covers more distance than any other Aston Villa player in most games which is you wouldn't think when you're at a game watching him live Mm -hmm. but he's hugely talented um, and I'd be surprised if he's not capped but it's also a position that he has a lot of competition and just now you know we've spoken about James Madison can't can't get a cap just now and he's he's been in great form so um, I think he will be capped I just um, I'm not sure if in the kind of very elite echelons of the modern game where everything is about pace and dynamism and power he just he's going to fit into that that mould
1: well that is it for now many thanks to our guests today James Restall and Paul Hurst
2: remember you can subscribe to the times and the sunday times to enjoy award winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet
1: it is just a pound a week for an 8 week trial search the times subscription for more information and we'll be back on thursday
6: The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.